to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 204, recorded May 23rd, 2015. So we're doing some ongoing today and we're covering ongoing 42 to 44. Right. So we're starting off with wrapping up Behemoth, uh, a two-parter, so this is the second half. It's been a while since we did the first one. Um... And then we'll be doing the first two of a three-part arc called Eurydice. Eurydice. That's right. I had to look that up. We had to look that up to know we, that we got the pronunciation right. Right. Which I'm still going to be prone to messing up when we're doing the synopsis. <laughs> you know, in college, uh, I had a, I had a um, mythology class. And I love that mythology class. But I do not remember Eurydice. I don't remember her story, so I had to go and look it up. But we can talk about that once we're in, into those issues. Yeah. Because I do not remember her at all. But even since I looked it up, I still don't know why they chose that name for this new character they're going to introduce. In right. This, uh, well, they this. give a very brief description of the, the myth, so let, let's talk about it after we do the, the second issue for today. Perfect. Well, you want to go ahead and get us started with uh, issue number 42 there, Ken? That would be my pleasure. So this one is Behemoth Part 2. Published date is February 25th, 2015. Creative team, Mike Johnson. Story consultant, Roberto Orkey. Art by Kat Skaggs. Colors by Wes Hartman. Letterer, Neil Yutaki. Editor, Sarah Gatos. The primary cover features Spock and Kirk on either side of the behemoth, which looks part like an amoeba and part like a big blue whale. The Enterprise is at the bottom of the cover. The second cover is a stock shot of McCoy in sickbay. The story picks up exactly where the last issue ended. Kirk and his away team are on the tall blue alien's ship. Scotty is trying to tell Kirk it's only a matter of hours until the ship's full supply of dilithium will be gone. The tall blue alien says, I told you so, to Kirk. Behemoth is back, and it's too late now. The creature that killed his entire planet is back, and it's pissed. It's attacking the Enterprise now. They all beam back to the ship, including the blue alien. They materialize in the hangar bay since the blue alien is too tall to fit in the transporter room. The ship pitches violently. Behemoth has them in some kind of wispy white energy tentacle that has a grip of iron. They try to escape on impulse power, but they are held fast. Scotty reports they need to get away from the beastie fast. It is eating their dilithium crystals. Kirk says if they can't break free with impulse, then go to warp. Spock warns of a potential catastrophe going to warp while still entangled with the creature. Kirk orders Sulu to do it anyway while they still can. It works! While in flight away from the creature, the blue alien adjusts to being aboard the Enterprise. It shows a keen interest in their tech, particularly propulsion and weapon systems. He tells Kirk to call him Hunter and tells him about Behemoth. It lives on solar energy to the degree that it extinguishes suns. When it finishes with a solar system, it is able to take that energy and use it to travel at warp speed to another system and start feeding again. Later, in a briefing room, they discuss the creature and their situation. The dilithium crystals left to them are in good shape. They figure the creature was tasting the energy they gave off like an unfamiliar dish. They discuss going back and killing it before it wipes out another star system and billions of more lives. They question whether they have the moral right to kill the being. 
Can they somehow get it fed without sacrificing star systems to do it? Chekhov calls from the bridge. Behemoth! It followed us! They attempt to flee again, but can't this time. Warp is not responding. Scotty warns that dilithium is draining even faster than before. The Enterprise is swallowed whole by the creature. Chekhov reports a shuttle is launching. It's Hunter. Hunter apologizes for taking the ship, but no choice. Spock reports sensors identify two armed photon torpedoes are on board. Sulu says warp control cutting in and out, trying to lock it down. Scotty reports that he is seeing very strange readings in Behemoth and all around them. It's like the beginning of an antimatter reaction, but without the containment of a warp core. Scotty asks what would happen if a photon torpedo was detonated in the middle of it. Scotty says he does not want to find out. Kirk tries to talk Hunter into coming back. There has to be another way. Hunter says there is no other way for him. No other way for Behemoth. Sula reports the warp drive has just kicked in. Kirk says, go now! The Enterprise departs the belly of the whale at warp speed. The last sensor reading before they went out of range told them Hunter was successful. The torpedo detonation caused a chain reaction that utterly destroyed Behemoth. Finally, they drop out of warp. The stars are unfamiliar. Chekhov cannot determine their location based on the stars he and the computers see. Scotty reports they have no dilithium left. They are stranded. To be continued in adrift. So where did they go? Good question. And why... (laughs) I still don't understand why them leaving the belly of the whale uh, caused them to go unusually fast, at least I have the impression they went unusually fast, and ended up in, uh, uh, well, they must have left their, uh, the quadrant, right? You'd think, since they don't recognize the stars. Left their quadrant? That's crazy. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, we'll find out in the next right. issue. But So, obviously, they went far, far away. Right. On E. So, somehow... As the last little ounce of dilithium crystals was being absorbed by the creature, it caused them to go super fast, super quick. <laughs> and then yes. they ran out of gas. Exactly. The big burst. Yeah, so now they're stuck in the middle of nowhere. How will they get out of this? How will they do it? Mm-mm-mm. I mean, at least uh, Janeway had a functioning ship. I wonder why you made that comparison. That's weird. I, it just came to mind. Huh. All right. Well, so this story, though, uh, reminded you of anything? Well, well, other than the Doomsday Machine? Yeah. So y- you mentioned that it re- reminded you of the Doomsday Machine the last right. time we talked about it uh, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't see it at the time, but wow, they even stole the ending or, well... They stole part of the ending with the alien in place of uh, Commodore Decker. Right. Yes. That's right. I was was shocked on that part. uh, Really? I was completely expecting it. Um, Right. But I was expecting him to use... Yeah. I, I, I was expecting them to use his ship. But whatever. So so they kept it a little different in the fact that Decker used a shuttlecraft the first time, and it was too small. Right. This time they used the shuttlecraft to actually do the job, but they had more stuff going on that made the shuttlecraft effective. Like two photon torpedoes and some magical witchamajiggers that had all kinds of uh, pre-warp core stuff going on, which I thought was like kind of like, what? What are you talking about? Okay. And to be honest, we don't know if it did work, because they're nowhere near where it was going off. Yeah, but I, I thought they said, I thought they said in the story it did work. I thought they said they assumed it worked, but I don't think they actually knew for sure. Well, okay, I thought they said it did work, and I questioned how could I questioned how they could know. <laughs> I mean, if they were leaving the area, you know, at warps, incredible 
fast warp speed, how could they know for sure? Right. But, well, in, in his captain's log, he says, I can only speculate what happened inside the, the behemoth once we warped away. So oh, I think okay. that was all okay. speculation on his part. Okay. Although we got to see it visually, so that makes us think that it really did happen. Yeah. We, the, we the reader, knows what know what happened. Right. But, okay. Good point. If that's really what happened, or it could just be an illustration of what Kirk was speculating. We don't know for sure. Oh, you're going to do that? <laughs> of I'm course still, it blew to heck. I'm still thinking that it could come back. Yeah. Well, there's no reason there can't be more than one of these things. It does appear to be... Well, it is biological. I mean, it's not a machine, right? So I'm sure it's not the only one of its kind. Right, and Janeway had to fight one uh, not too long ago in that Wildstorm comic. So Exactly. There could and, be more than one. Exactly, and uh, in that case, it was the mechanical... Well, biomechanical, I guess it was. Right. Where this thing appears to be a naturally occurring creature, but... I suppose you could I suppose you could engineer a fully biological weapon. Hmm. Hmm. Who knows? Right. So, anyways, did you did you enjoy the story overall? Um it was okay. It was okay. I mean, I thought they made the alien different, sufficiently different from peep from humans that it was cool. Um, and they, and I mentioned this before, but the fact that they couldn't like speak to them it immediately, I thought was a little, made it a little bit more believable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the universal translator had to work with the language a little while before it could fully kick in that kind of thing. Uh, I like that. Um, yeah, but, but like it wasn't absolutely fantastic. I mean, it, it was good, but what do you think? I enjoyed it. Um, I do think they borrowed too much from the Doomsday Machine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm all, I'm all, I'm all good with them doing reimaginings of classic episodes like they did in the beginning. Right. But they always gave credit to the original episode in the credits. But here, they don't even mention Doomsday Machine once. So at first, I was like, "Well, okay, it's just a giant ship," you know. Could be a coincidence, but then when they destroyed it the same way, uh, it it can't be a coincidence. Yeah, and you should, you know, acknowledge that we borrowed the story from. I agree. Machine. I agree. Um, I actually happened upon a YouTube video, and I forgot the guy that that made it, but apparently it's it's a guy that's made multiple Star Trek um, videos. And it's quite, quite, quite polished, quite professional, and, he, and the focus of this video was the Doomsday Machine, the original episode. And they interviewed the author, who I don't remember the, the name of the author, but um, it, was really, it was like a half an hour long video or something like that on YouTube. And it was really interesting, because it went into a lot of detail and said a lot of things that I didn't realize. So it not only talked, about, talked to the writer and talked about what he did, with the script and everything, but they also talk about the music. So the um, the composer that did the music for again, I, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's done other episodes. But I always thought the music was pretty good in it, and and they went into how they how they put together the music and a lot of bits of the music, and it was like, yeah, that was a pretty good score. Hmm. Um. So, and I'm going to get off of this in a second, but one thing they mentioned was uh, all the major characters had their own themes. You know, that's not a new thing. Darth Vader has his theme. Luke has his theme. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kirk has a theme, and Decker has a theme, and the Doomsday Machine has a theme. And, and, and when, you ident- when, when he points it out to you, the guy making the film, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that all makes sense. And then they're... They're talking about how they're interweaving the themes as the video is cutting between these different people and different characters. It was really quite masterful. It was quite very good. And huh. the last thing I'll say about it is they showed, they played a portion of the Doomsday Machine theme. And then right after it, they played the Jaws theme, uh, the Jaws theme that represents the shark. Sure. And it's like, 
Wow! They're almost the same thing. Huh. And it's like, I never heard them play back-to-back like that. But it's like, when they do that, it's like, wow, that is almost identical. And, um, and of course, this came out a ways before John Williams did the Jaws um, thing. Um, not saying that John Williams got it from this episode, but um, it's, it was quite a coincidence that they're so close. That's interesting. Yeah, because the, bot- the bottom line is it- it's, it's, a, it's a Moby Dick story. Um, and uh, Decker is Ahab. Ahab, right? Captain Ahab? Yep. I think that's right. Yep. Um, anyway, all kinds of... It, it, I, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, it was really a good episode. I always thought it was a good episode. But it was very interesting seeing this, this one. I wish I had the name of the guy. But if you, if you do a YouTube search on Doomsday Machine, it'll come up. You know, Star yeah. Trek Doomsday Machine will come. How much digging are you going to have to do, though? The digging? Yeah. Well, it was one of the it was one of the higher ones. Okay. Well, anyway, so recommended. Uh, overall, the artwork I thought was um, even more so than what we've been noticing lately in regards to the background being completely washed out mm. and and most of the times unrecognizable. Right. And then you know the characters just kind of standing out in front of it. Right. Uh, not enjoying that as much as uh, I would like to. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe they're just taking, you know, obviously taking their time on the uh, on the characters who who are the focus of the story, but and then going light on the background. Right. But even sometimes, like when the the tentacles were wrapping around the Enterprise, the Enterprise was should be your main focus because it's the one being about to be destroyed and right. it's all washed out and, yeah. and flat yep good point so, I don't know not my favorite art right. style yeah I, I thought it, I thought it was fine you know not stellar but fine there are some very interesting colors colorful things like uh, when they actually show the um, the shuttle blowing up I thought that was very colorful pretty cool looking um, and definitely, uh, w- when, when the behemoth actually explodes into bits, the orange explosion in the middle of it with all the pinkish purplish kind of stuff towards the outside, right. um, that's pretty, that's pretty cool looking, but I definitely agree about the backgrounds, uh, about things being washed out. It's not the right. best. Yeah. It's really hit or miss. Cause sometimes the artwork looks great. Other times it, it just really washed out. Right. Cool. Okay. Uh, it struck me a little odd um, that they didn't just ask the blue alien to duck, <laughs> like like they did when they beamed over to the Fasarius in the uh, Corbomite maneuver original oh. <laughs> Taz episode. Yeah. You know, Scotty or whoever was doing the transporter room just said, uh, "Cramped quarters over there, gentlemen. You might want to duck." It's like okay, you know. But uh, of course, they they use that as the experience as the excuse to beaming into uh, a shuttle hangar bay. So. Oh, so that he could then have access to the shuttle. Exactly. So, okay, I understand why you're doing that, but you can duck, you know, but whatever. That's right. Um, I didn't even think about that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to talk about is the idea that, um, <laughs> uh, Kirk is saying, punch it. Punch a Chewy, I mean Sulu, and uh, so you know the first thing was like, okay, you know Picard has his engage, uh, Kirk has multiple. The original Kirk has multiple things, but now um, new Kirk tends to say punch it, right? And so did the reimagined uh, Captain Pike in the 2009 movie. He said punch it too, right? And then I was like, oh boy. There's a lot of punching going on. And then I just did a quick little search, and I happened upon a YouTube video where all it is is made up of clips of characters saying punch it. And, man, there's a lot of movies and TV shows where people say punch it. <laughs> anyway, I, I just thought I'd Was Star you know. Wars one of the first ones? Um, 
yeah, Star Wars was not one of the first ones. I mean, they an amazing number of movies and stuff say punch it. Huh. Um, and Star Wars was not in the beginning of all that. So the first thing I thought of was, well, they're just, you know, San Solo. It's just doing it, you know, taking something from Han Solo. But then I'm looking at this video and it's like, oh, wow. Well, they probably did take it from Han Solo. But quite frankly, there's a poopload of uh, media that, that says punch it. So. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to have to look that one up. <laughs> so you just did a search for punch it on YouTube? Uh, I did it on the web, uh, and then I ended up with a YouTube link, and it was a video, and it had, like, Will Smith, you know, what's that, I think those movies with him and Martin Lawrence. Um, oh, Bad Boys? Bad Boys? Yeah, Bad Boys. So, yeah. one of those, he's, you know, Will Smith says punch it, and uh, anyway, there's all kinds of examples. Well, the best one's obviously going to be Star Wars, so. Uh. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it's in there. Right, I'm sure it is. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Nada. Okay. Well, then let me jump straight into issue number 43 called Eurydice, uh, part one of three. Uh, This has a cover date of March 2015, written by Mike Johnson, colors by David Mastrolandro, letters by Neil Yutaki, art by Tony Shastin, story consultant by Roberto Orki, edits by Sarah Gatos. The primary cover shows uh, Marcus in front of a city skyline with her phaser drawn. Looming above the skyline is Kirk, also holding a phaser, and Spock on a communicator. And then the photo cover is just Sulu standing there. So the story starts with the Enterprise trapped in the Delta Quadrant from its last-ditch effort to get away from the behemoth last issue which also has depleted its dilithium crystals so they are now thousands of light years away and they have no warp speed with only the sublight drives the mighty ship starts to limp its way back home as the weeks and months pass kirk notices that the whole crew is banding together in a way he did not think possible Even when they're on just rations, the crew's spirit remain high. Budding relationships between Uhura and Spock, and also Chekhov and Irina, seem to only strengthen during this crisis. Suddenly, the Enterprise is hailed by another vessel. The sole crew member aboard introduces herself as Eurydice. She tells them that she is a scavenger, and she's willing to tow the Enterprise for free. The crew mull the offer over, but realize they cannot look a gift horse in the mouth, and they agree. Shortly, the Enterprise is encased in a swirling light and is towed beside the scavenger's ship. As they are en route at warp speed, Eurydice comments to herself that they seem like good people, and she feels bad for what's about to happen next. To be continued. What do you mean by that? Wait a minute, isn't she helping them? Out of the goodness of her own heart. Exactly. Free of charge. Exactly. She makes enough, apparently, and she's just helping. Right. Hmm. Right. Something's, something's fishy going on. Exactly. Something's rotten in Denmark. And luckily, I mean, Kirk isn't fully trusting her, but what can they do? So they're keeping their eyes open, but... I guess we'll see how worried they are about how appropriately distrustful they are in the next episode or next issue. Right. Because I got some comments about that one, but whatever. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Eurydice. So in Greek mythology, she was an oak nymph. Um, She was an oak nymph or one of the daughters of Apollo. So I guess there might have been some differences in what she was in, in mythology. Whatever. Um, but so she was the wife of Orpheus, who tried, Orpheus tried to bring her back from being dead, so she was bitten by a snake or something, and died. And so Orpheus tried to bring her back, and he ends up making a deal with Lucifer, or whatever they call him, Hades, I guess they call him Hades. And then they were, Hades said, okay, you can take her, but you need to be looking forward the whole time until you get out of heck. Uh, you know, hell. And 
So he's Orpheus is walking, 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 and he starts to say, "Oh, oh near near the near the opening." Well, what if she really isn't there? And of course, he looks behind, sees she's there, but she gets sucked back into into Hack, and he's without her. So there you go. So that's the story of Eurydice. Um, but how how so far that matches this? Don't know. Hmm. Well, I guess they just need to keep their eyes forward. <laughs> right. So, well, maybe we can come back to this at the end of the second issue. So, right. see if there's anything the second issue can tell us on why they why uh, Mike Johnson chose this the, the the name of the character. The character's name could be anything. Right. Uh, it could be Catwoman because she looks a little like a cat, a little bit like reminiscent of a cat. Right. Um, she even has little tufts of fur, kind of. On her shoulders and stuff, shoulders, yeah. right? So, but they, but he chose Eurydice, so there must be a reason, or maybe he just liked the name. Who knows? Right. I did like how Uhura said that that's probably not her real name. It's just a coincidence that it just happens to sound like uh, Eurydice to us. Oh, that, right, because the Universal Translator. Right. Right. Okay. So, it's, so I like how they even threw that in there. That it's just uh, that's just the way we're hearing it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, but why did, <laughs> okay, so it's just, it just sounds that way. Okay, fine. Right. So, uh, interesting thing on this though, um, the universal translator kicked in right away, right? Yeah. No, nope, never had a problem with her. Yeah. Never hiccuped on her, even though she's in a totally different part of the galaxy and they've never come into contact with them before. It's working immediately. So, okay, fine, whatever inconsistency but that's fine it keeps guess, things going quicker i guess it could be that she uh she somehow sent a program to translate her language to them in advance i don't know it doesn't make sense no no so speaking of where they're at they're right. in the delta quadrant quite a coincidence yes why are they in the delta quadrant well, why would they pick that as the place to send them? Unless they're wanting to get a, a Voyager vibe. But I don't think you would have, you wouldn't have to do that in order to still get the Voyager vibe. As far as you're only at sublight and you have to get to a planet that has dilithium crystals. I, I don't know. Um, maybe they're actually trying to. <laughs> map out and say, well, which direction did the Enterprise go in on the five-year mission? And maybe they're trying to say they went in the direction of the Delta Quadrant. I don't know. I mean, maybe they went to the point of actually bothering. Right. Or maybe they just really just wanted to get a Voyager field. Which, obviously, that's the situation they're in, right? I mean, they're, <laughs> they're in a Voyager situation, but with a broken ship. Right. 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 But I'm saying you could have the Voyager feel without having to actually say we're in the Delta Quadrant. Right. Unless you're going to, you know, have some sort of homage to some of the species that are in the Delta Quadrant. You know, what what was the... Oh, yeah. That's a point. What was the Kazon doing a hundred years before Voyager showed up? You know, Good that point. kind of thing. Good point. But I don't remember... Well, okay. We should save it for the next next issue. Right. When we start seeing other alien beings other than just Eurydice. Right. So as of right now, Eurydice, not someone we've ever seen before. We've never seen this species before. Correct. Yep. So she's got pretty good tech, though. I mean, she was able to beam a hologram onto the – a pretty convincing hologram onto the bridge. They had had shields up, right? Right. Right. Yep, so, she was able to beam that over, and actually, I mean, she actually sees out of these eyes. So, I mean, it shows her, like, bending down to look at, um, you know, a console or something. Yeah, and she comments how she likes, ooh, maybe I'm jumping the gun. Right, well. Yeah, no. okay, okay, so, did she make the comment about liking Spock's ears? Yeah. Okay, so, okay, so I'm not jumping the gun. Um, yeah, so she's interacting and seeing what's going on. So, yeah, how do you do that without actually having some kind of a recording device um, on the bridge? Some visual but it has to device. But it has to be at her eye level, because otherwise, why would she yeah. bend down and look around? So, it's some advanced tech, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, 
And it's the same kind of thing in the original Taz series where they'd be able to get a video feed from within <laughs> a Romulan ship with no camera in the ship. So that's what that happened in Balance of Terror. Right. Uh, it's like, well, how the heck did you get a video? I mean, even back then when I was a kid, I said, how did how'd you do that? <laughs> anyway. Oh, man, I watched something the other day. Maybe, uh, maybe it was the Avengers. I can't remember, but... Um... There was a scene where something happened, and then later they sh- somebody had it recorded on their phone or something, and, and replayed it for them. And it was all the different camera angles and stuff, you know, kind of like Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three has the they show the remember scene, but from different camera angles. And you know, even as a kid back then, I was like, why would why would you know uh, Spock's dad have all the different camera angles that we saw in, in the Wrath of Khan? And then mm-hmm. here in a, in a modern movie, they they do an exact same thing. Yeah, it seems like kind of sloppy editing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, good point. Good point. I never noticed that. Good point. You never noticed in Wrath of Khan or the Search for Spock that they just replay the end of the movie with all the different camera angles and everything. No, I don't remember close that. ups, pan shots. You know, it's just like. Who edited this? I mean, if it was supposed to be just footage from the Enterprise logs or whatever. Anyways. Well, okay. I mean, just because what we, as the omniscient watchers Mm -hmm. of what happened, I mean, we have omniscient ability to see what's going on in any movie we look at. Sure. That isn't necessarily what's recorded by the, you know, the ship's internal sensors or something. Right, it shouldn't be, but right. But then when he played the internal sensors, yeah. it was it was, you know, the close up of Spock's hand, the you know the remember and all that stuff was exactly right. the way it was in the Wrath of Khan. Instead of them just refilming it, um, instead of them just refilming it with with a static shot, they just took the footage from the Wrath of Khan and, and replayed it. Oh, well, okay. Just saying, you shouldn't do that. Well, they probably just want, didn't want to waste the money refilming mm. it. They wanted the cheap. Yeah, well, it was cheap, all right. And I don't like it, darn but it. Well edited, but it's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. Anyways, so different art art credits are different in this episode, this issue. But they do the same style with the yes. really faded background and the Yes, they foreground. do. Yes, they do. So it must be a mandate and not just uh, happen to be that person's uh, art style. Maybe it's something to cost control or something. I don't know. But uh, but you'll notice at least they have lens flares in a few spots. So that's important. <laughs> of course. It of can't course. be the rebooted universe without lens flares. <laughs> right. Right. I wonder if the new movie is going to have lens flares. I don't know. But I think that since we've got a different director, I think I think he needs to chart his own direction, his own course. Right. So speaking of Star Trek Three and this issue, mm-hmm. so the story consultant continues to be Roberto Orki. Mm-hmm. Um, now that he got replaced on writing Star Trek Three, and there's been comments that the reason why he got replaced is because Paramount didn't want it to be too Star Trek-y. I wonder if that's going to... Or Wrath of Connie. Right, but but I, the, the last thing I saw, um, Simon Pegg said that he was hired because Paramount didn't want it to be too Star Trek-y. They wanted to make it less like Star Trek. Mm, so, But, well, hold on. Why would Simon Pegg... Be less Star Trekky. He loves Star Trek. Sure, but he—I'm just saying that's what I didn't write the article. That's just what it said. Okay, but I'm just wondering how that's going to affect this comic book. I mean, would eventually Roberto Orki leave this this comic book too? Once he's going to be on the mainstream movies, maybe. But quite frankly, maybe. I think when he had the relationship with these folks, um, you know, with with IDW, I don't know that it was necessarily a Paramount-sanctioned thing, per se. 
So, you know, maybe he had a relationship with the IDW folks, um, and maybe that relationship will continue. But who right, knows? But maybe I'm not. just saying, if you, if you were – if you got fired from a job that you were supposed to be the lead of, I mean, he was, he was targeted supposed to, to be direct the director. Yes, right. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, he's being removed as director, and then yes. he's being removed away from the writing. I think I would be – a little disenchanted with the franchise and maybe I would, you know, as being Roberto Orkey would potentially leave, leave. I hope it's not the case because I, I love, I love his stuff, but I'm just worried that that, that could potentially be a ramification of all this. Yeah, that's possible. But maybe also he loves comic books and he loves Star Trek and he'll do whatever he'll continue. he can. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope so. I hope so too because uh, he's damn good. And I love having the you know nothing in the movies have has contradicted any of these issues all that much. I mean, aside from Kirk saying no one's ever died yet, we've seen people die in the uh, in the comic books during uh, Into Darkness. He right. said he's never lost a crew member, but in the comic yeah, I remember book, that. I've seen but... him lose a few. Well, they made a uh, a point of not losing Cupcake, although you never see him anymore. Yeah, he hasn't been there in a couple no couple issues. No, he he's been replaced pretty much by uh, you know the green guy and uh, and the short haired sassy sassy chick. And her name is Zara. Is Zara, Zara it? Yeah. So Cupcake's pretty much been replaced. That's too bad. Yeah, he was kind of a jerk though. <laughs> although you know. Little less of a jerk in the comic as the comics brought him forward, but right. Okay, so her ship, mm-hmm. Eurydice's ship, uh, ship. What was the name of it again? Oh, I don't. Even, I, sh- I thought I wrote that down, but I don't see it in my notes. Hmm. Anyway, the look of it reminds me a little of a uh, Vietnam World War, uh, Vietnam era UE helicopter. That's what it reminds me. The front of it reminds me of a, 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 a UE helicopter. And UE as in the Bell UH-1 Iroquois UE. So, you know, the one you see in, in all the uh, Vietnam era movies right. and stuff, you know. Um, in that great, great scene. So in Apocalypse, that great scene in Apocalypse Now when they're playing uh, Wagner's, uh, Wagner music and Ride of the Valkyries and... Those helicopters, where they had a whole bunch of them dropping napalm and whatever. Anyway, so that was uh, that's what it remind the front of her ship reminds me of. But then, when you take a look at it, I mean, well, it, it seems when you look at her cockpit and how it kind of looks like she's looking out, and then you see how big the ship is from the outside. It doesn't look that big, but um, it's pretty big. As we'll see in the next issue, right? Uh, where it's well, I don't want to jump the gun, but it, it's 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 right next to the Enterprise, again, like it is uh, near the end of this issue. Um, you know, it's right next to the Enterprise too, but um, it's pretty big. I mean, it's it's smaller than the Enterprise, but not by much. Right. Anyway, I just thought it was odd that she controls it using uh, virtual reality gloves. Ah, right. And she apparently runs it all by herself. So um, among their, their improved tech, they've got, uh, they've got better automation, right? apparently, than the Enterprise. There are an awful lot of people that run the Enterprise, which Especially always seems a little odd. Yeah. Tons. Anyway. I also like how they made it, you know, they, they didn't just run, up, run upon Eurydice right away. Right, so it's like fifty days limping along at sublight. Uh, was it fifty or sixty? But yeah, it was I thought it was fifty. Yeah, fifty. But, you're right. Um, yeah, a good long time. Yeah, so at least you know, at least they made it a little bit more realistic that way. I mean, they could have just launched right into it right away. Oh, Eurydice! Uh, no, no, they they let it go a little while. Right. So that's good. I thought that was good. Yeah, just talking about how everybody's still in good spirits, even though they're gonna die here on the ship. <laughs> Once they run out of food, exactly. Run out of food. Uh, yeah. 
Right. I, I cut it out of the synopsis, but there was, there's a scene where Ahura and Spock are contemplating uh, the removal of the um, arboretum and replacing it with some sort of, um, I Farm. guess they're going to grow crop, crops or something in there. Right, right. Which makes sense. I don't, I don't think you would wait a month before you start thinking about that. Right. But, um, and then I did like the scene with uh, Chekhov and um, Irina where they're trying to figure out how to make artificial dilithium. I thought that mm-hmm. was cool. Yeah. Kind of a cool idea. And he's saying it's impossible and she's like, well, that's why it's fun. <laughs> yeah, she's cute. So we have a little relationship going there, developing. So, bravo. Good for you, Chekhov. Yeah, the one relationship that I would have liked to see continued that they started hinting on uh, issue before last was Marcus and Kirk. Right. I mean, I don't think she's even in this issue. Yeah. Well, oh, well, she's I'm... in it, but just as a background character. Well, because Kirk's kind of got the beginnings of something with Eurydice, right? Um, they're hinting at it. Well, well in the next issue there. So far. In the next issue there, they're hinting at it strongly. Mm. Well, let's get jump in and find out. Okay. Okay, so um, this is issue 44, and this is part two. Uh, everybody... Everybody's the same on this one, so I'm not going to re- uh, redo the creative team. The primary cover features McCoy dominating the top half of the cover. Ahura and Sulu are on the left and right side of the cover. Kirk is seated at the con, ready for action. The second cover shows a photo of Kirk in his dress uniform with a phaser rifle up and firing, I suppose, at Khan in that helicopter-like vehicle. The issue opens with Eurydice ferrying the Enterprise at warp speed, to an unknown destination, where they are told they could obtain dilithium crystals to replace the ones consumed by the behemoth. Kirk does not fully trust Eurydice, and it kills him to give up control of his ship this way. Kirk hails Eurydice and asks her again where they are going. Give me a name, he says. She brings Kirk over to her ship using some kind of advanced transporter that works very differently from their own. She tells him the same story about making enough on recent jobs that she can take on charity cases like them. Kirk does not fully believe it, but Eurydice comes in close and whispers in his ear a little nothing about lonely souls. The close proximity ends when when her ship, the Spectral, tells them they are coming close to an asteroid field. Eurydice tells Kirk they have arrived and transports him back to the Enterprise. As they come in, crossing over the top of the asteroid field, Eurydice says they are heading to that really big asteroid dead ahead. The carved-out asteroid houses a city. She calls it the Dark Market. Eurydice, Kirk, Spock, Uhura, Scotty, and uh, that sassy female security officer all beam over and find themselves in a bustling city uh, where the streets are populated with aliens of many strange and unknown species, at least unknown to the Starfleet crew. They meet a dog-faced merchant who sells them a large dilithium crystal in exchange for all their phasers. The security officer balks, but incredibly, Kirk tells her to turn them all over. For Christ Pete's Kirk, keep at least one. Eurydice says the merchant will deliver the dilithium to their ship, but first they need to get the transaction blessed by the syndicate. Kirk asks what is it, and she explains the syndicate is the closest thing to a government there is in this section of the market. They bless all transactions. The syndicate makes a profit off everything, any product, even people. They take a circular elevator up one of the taller skyscrapers and enter a very large room to see what looks like a bunch of neurons in a brain. But the neurons talk to them. They welcome Eurydice by name and say that indeed she has not reneged on her obligation to them. Their transaction is complete. Kirk says, what obligation? 
they are not talking about the transaction for the dilithium crystals, are they? Eurydice says, no, they aren't. Next, she says she is sorry to Kirk. Snow-like ribbons of white light come down on Kirk and his landing party, but do not touch Eurydice. They lapse into unconsciousness. She asks the syndicate what they will do with them. The syndicate boss says, that is not your concern. The visitors and their ship now belong to us, as does the profit they will bring. To be continued. I knew you couldn't trust her. <clears throat> no. Cat lady. Now, it appears as if she didn't want to do what she did, but she had to. So there was something, some forced reason why she did that. I mean, is she in debt to these guys? Um, is she in hock, maybe, to, in, for the benefit of somebody else we haven't met yet? Right. Um, we don't know. But for some reason, he, she owed them, and apparently Kirk and his crew and ship are the payment. Yep. Too bad they don't have phasers. Yeah, it's like, come on, guys! Jeez! <laughs> Kirk was pretty stinking dumb. I mean, he demonstrated that he wasn't trusting what was going on. Um, I mean, warning lights should be flashing at least the security with Zara. At least right. she's bright enough that she's saying, wait a minute, are you really thinking this through? Um, anyway. But what I don't understand is as soon as they stepped out of that shop, they should have called the Enterprise and had some phasers beamed over. Exactly. Hello? Anyway. Yeah, did not make sense. No, no. But having them disarmed did make sense from what... Uh, Eurydice finally did. Well, so. I think I don't see how having them armed would have stopped them from getting zapped by the brain. It's not like they had much had noticed that they're about to get attacked. Uh, true. However, that's just the way it went. Right. If you want to erase the risk of that, you pretty much want them disarmed. Sure. Um. Anyway, so there you go. You know, little bell should be going off, Kirk. Come on, I'm disappointed. So what would you think of all the strange creatures, all the Delta Quadrant species that were here in the, the dark market? Um, I will say several things. I think it was some creative, interesting things going on. Um, I thought the, the dog-faced uh, guy who sold him the dilithium crystals, mm-hmm. I thought they were pretty, I thought he looked pretty good. Um, there were multiple places, though, where they had human faces on some of the alien bodies, which was a little distracting, um, because I can only assume that those faces are, um, you know, real people. Um, like, so the, in, when they're first, the first scene in the market square, there's a guy in kind of an orange spacesuit and a, a bubbly helmet, mm-hmm. a, and he's still an alien, so his, his head... Ob- the top of his head is obviously alienish, but his face is quite human. He's got a beard, mm-hmm. uh, and I can I can bet that that's some that's a real person. Um, I don't know. I mean, is it is it like another comic book shop owner or maybe somebody on the creative staff or something? I don't know, but I'm sure right. that's a real person that they slipped in. Yeah. Um, and then there's another one further down the line. Um where it's like some weird body, but then it's got a, a human face with a helmet and, like, glasses on? Um, later you, down the line, you mean a few pages later? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, he has the... So he, he's, he looks like he's almost like kind of short little robotic body or something. Right. And, and then... Like looking right at you. Exactly. So it's like, okay, that looks like a real real person, too. And that's, like, right next to these other cool-looking aliens that, you know, especially that one big uh, stout guy with, with the big, huge helmet and, like, like, four or five cameras coming out of the front. Right. I, he looks cool. So, and, I mean, and the guy right behind him looks cool, too. He does. Different. Very different. So creativity was going on there, but then they slip in these human faces. A little distracting. Right. And there's one scene where... Um, Right after the first scene with the uh, the guy in the helmet, yeah, the bubble helmet, and then on the next page, there's like 
in the foreground there's like a vulture looking person and then like a like a caterpillar looking guy. Oh right. Yeah, and those look like something from like a Jim Henson movie or something, like Lab Oh or right. Yeah, Dark yeah. Crystal or something like that. Uh, yeah, Dark Crystal, the the guy on the left. I completely agree with that. Yeah, so I mean they were kinda all over the place as far as species. Right. I, I thought it was quite creative. Yes, but why not why not do something with being in the Delta Quadrant and having you know, one of Neelix's species in the background. Not Neelix himself, but just some oh, well, of species that we've seen before. I agree. Yeah, and I did not even think of that. But you're completely right. That would be very cool to have one of those slipped in there. Maybe an Okampa or... Something. Something. Yeah. And at first I thought that um, Eurydice was a little bit like Neelix. I mean, her... Neelix was a scavenger too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So... I kept thinking, I wonder if she's supposed to kind of be like Neelix. I mean, because he had the weird tufts of hair on his face and arms too, right? Yeah, but they don't She doesn't have it on her face. She doesn't look like him, but... No. I was wondering if it was like an homage to him. Oh, maybe, maybe. Perhaps. So what do you think the payment is, though? I mean, are they going to take the crew and, you know, into bondage, slavery or something? Or are they interested in the ship? Or I wouldn't see them being too interested in the ship. We... In general, their their tech is different, but in many cases, it seems to be more advanced. Like they make some comment, the uh, the dog face guy, about there's easier ways of getting the warp than using dilithium crystals. Right. So, um, and and of course, next gen doesn't use dilithium crystals, do they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, I thought they got away from all that. Okay, so I, I guess they mentioned them in the early episodes, but I don't remember them being mentioned much later in this, you know, as the series progressed much. Right. Anyway. Um, so anyways, they seem to have higher tech in many ways, so I don't see them needing the ship. Right, and that also flies in the face of Voyager, because Voyager was like the most sophisticated ship in the Delta Quadrant. Good point. That's right. And then here uh, we are in the Delta Quadrant, 100 years before Voyager would show up, and yeah. everybody's more advanced. Right. Well, another point is, the Delta Quadrant is still a big place. Sure, sure. I mean, the Alpha Quadrant, I mean, we got the Klingon Empire, we got the Romulan Empire, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So it's a big place. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Quit talking logic. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. want to generalize but, but, the whole quarter of the galaxy yeah. <laughs> into the but, few things we saw that seven years. Yeah, but you do make a good point. I mean, it's like, why place in the Delta Quadrant if you're not actually going to have anything that has anything to do with Voyager? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, or maybe this is a part of the Delta Quadrant they didn't get to yet. You know, the Voyager gang. Right, yeah, it could have been in the part that was closest to the Alpha Quadrant, which exactly. they, they skip over at the end. Right, exactly. So, who knows? I don't know. I just think that if you were going to do the Delta Quadrant in in the ongoing issues, I wish that somehow they would have taken one of the Klingon ships, the modified post-Narada Klingon ships, right, and then somehow have the, the Borg tech that they borrowed somehow know hey, I'm close to home, you know, and start acting up or whatever and taking over the ship or something like that. They've just That would have been an interesting storyline to kind of make, if they really wanted to mix in Voyager and the ongoing, That I think that would have been a, a more natural fit than what we're getting here. Right. Because this just seems like it's name dropping for the sake of name dropping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you name dropper. I really don't have anything else to say, uh, with the exception of the transporter. Uh, what kind of turns them into yeah. two-dimensional checkers, and then they disappear and come back over here. Yeah, well, it makes it looks like you're you're sliced and diced into little cubes of flesh, and then reassembled. Yuck. Right. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, look at it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what it looks like. Like you're all sliced up, no blood, and you just slice back together again. Very so. I mean, it's cool. It's it's different tech, which makes sense. That would be different, but it's like kind of gross different. <laughs> in the case of the transporter, anyway. Right. 
just don't understand why it looks so two dimensional. Oh, it, it looks like oh. it was a photograph that was just cut. Oh, off. I get you. So you don't see any of the like guts, like having a little bit more of an angle on it, so you can right. see guts. I don't want to see the slices. Guts. I just want it to look like something other than a two dimensional picture that's been right sent through the shredder. Right. Good point. It looks cool. Yeah. So I still think that Zara, Zara, something being, like that. Yeah, being the uh, the the sassy, smart security person she is, you know, I think she's going to have like a like a phaser stash in her boot or something. <laughs> yeah. Something. Something. Yeah. A knife or something. Something. Come on. You could stick a phase one. Or a Type 1 phaser in their boot. I completely agree. It's just that we haven't seen a Type 1 phaser in their re-envisioned whatever. Right. Interesting. So. Yeah. I, I like the Type 1 phasers in Taz. They are very cool. Uh, but even Next Gen dumped them kind of early in Season 1. They look like remote controls. Well, okay. So, yes. But, what a great form factor. What do you mean? Well, it's so small oh, and, yeah, and dainty. Right, right, right. Form factor. So, so the size of it is very cool, very compelling. But uh, they said they stopped using Phaser Type 1s in uh, Next Gen because in too many of the scenes, especially ones that weren't close up, it made it look like um, like, like the phaser beam was coming out of your hand. Right. So it's like, well, okay, fine. But I still like them. They're very handy. Especially if you're on a mission like this, where you just want to have a little backup. You know, cops normally carry backups, right? Come on. Right, right. Backup weapons. Anyway. So, it should be interesting to see how they get out of this one. And I have nothing else to say. That's it? That's it. I'm done. Okay, same here. I, I Well, I will say that I kind of like this one so far. So, I'm... It's interesting to see... The Enterprise is completely on their own. Absolutely no hope of backup from the Federation. And we will see what they, uh, they're ab- how they're able to get out of this. I think they'll do it. I think they will too. But interesting to see how. Right. Just hopefully they don't do it in a lame way. <laughs> they don't ever do anything lame. Oh, come on. But I'm sure it'll be great. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sounds it'll be good. a couple of uh, months before we get around to reading those though so don't don't get too excited right well i will be reading this prior to us doing the episode sorry to burst your bubble but i'm just looking forward to finding out what's going on next week we're doing just one story the gorn crisis yeah but it's a mongo one yeah so it's uh is it uh around the nemesis timeline somewhere between insurrection and nemesis um i think so uh, the only thing is, um, and I'll have a comment about this, man, Riker's in a lot better shape than he was in the movies. Oh, is he? Because <laughs> I have read it. Um, and the Gorns are definitely Taw's Gorns. Okay. No two ways about that. Uh, only they look, you know, they look better, <laughs> they look better in the comic book than in the cheesy rubber suit. Cheesy. Uh, cheesy rubber suit in the original uh, ep- Taz episode. Hmm. Don't know what episode you saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so realistic when Kirk was fighting the Gorn. That's great. Hmm. All right, so uh, we'll be doing that next week. Um, and then after that, we're going to be doing the big Next Generation Deep Space Nine crossover called Divided We Fall. Ooh! I've been forward forward to that one. Cool. All right. Well, I guess we'll close up shop and be back next week. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. 
or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.